Hey friends, just before we get started, I want to take a quick detour. Later on in the episode, you're going to be hearing from Dr. Micah Johnson. He's a resident physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and my co-author on my upcoming book, Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. Two years ago, Mike and I sat down and realized that despite Medicare for All taking center stage in our political conversation, no one really put together a good book that answered all the basic questions about what Medicare for All is, why we need it, and how we can make it a reality. We decided to write that book. It's been a labor of love, and we're incredibly proud of what we put together. A guide both for those who are skeptical about Medicare for All and for those who believe deeply in it but need to understand where it's going and what we need to do to get it done. We wanted a one-stop shop for Medicare for All, and we feel like our book's done just that. We're going to be talking later on in the episode about how we answered some of the toughest questions people ask about Medicare for All. Am I going to lose my choice of healthcare? How much is it going to cost? What's it going to do to jobs? So if you're looking for a quick breakdown of Medicare for All, I hope you'll check it out. Now, we want this book to reignite the conversation about Medicare for All, and we think to do that, it's got to be a New York Times bestseller. What we've heard is that we've got to sell 5,000 copies by February 5th. And guess what? We're already 75% of the way there. So if you haven't checked it out, I hope you'll go to medicareforallbook.com to take a look and pick up yours. That's medicareforallbook.com. Now, on to the episode. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris were officially inaugurated on Wednesday, and immediately afterward, the president signed a flurry of executive orders aimed at curbing COVID-19. There is some evidence that the pandemic may in fact have peaked last week, as cases are down in 35 states. Yet new strains of COVID-19 threaten to upend that progress. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. There I say it, things are starting to look up. Last Wednesday was a momentous day for our country. In fact, it was one year ago to that day that COVID-19 was first detected in the U.S. Oh, something else happened, too. So help you, God. So help me, God. Congratulations, Mr. President. The symmetry couldn't be more poignant. The first thing President Biden did upon assuming the presidency was sign a series of executive orders to curb the pandemic. First, let's state the obvious here. Plan beats no plan. And as we all kind of knew already, the Trump administration didn't have a plan. Joe Biden may finally be captaining the ship, but he's inherited a ship from a captain who could care less about it. It's sinking and littered with holes. Now, the first order of business is meeting the mark on our new president's pledge to administer 100 million vaccines in 100 days. Sure, we developed a new vaccine for a novel virus in only eight months. But as we've discussed, vaccinating people is also a deeply complex thing. There has to be enough vaccine. You have to make sure it gets to where it needs to go most, And you have to make sure people actually trust the vaccine enough to want to take it. To tackle that Goliath, Biden is deploying the Defense Production Act to speed the production of vaccine. He's authorizing the National Guard to be a part of the deployment strategy and authorizing FEMA to reimburse state and local governments for vaccine expenditures and mandating the CDC to work with state and local governments to create deployment plans. And finally, he's ordered federal agencies to begin working on mass vaccination education campaigns. Notably, these education campaigns will involve local community organizations who, in most communities, are far more trusted than the federal government, in many cases for good reason. Joe Biden is also setting the tone early that the federal government's going to walk the walk on COVID-19 prevention and lead with science. Part of that is issuing a mask mandate on all federal property, and part of that just means ceding the podium to scientists. Here's one you might remember. The idea 
that you can get up here and talk about what you know, what the science is, and know that's it. Let the science speak. It is somewhat of a liberating feeling. It's nice to see him happy, no? But COVID-19 isn't simply a health disaster. It's also an economic one. So part of Biden's plan is making sure that critical institutions can operate safely. He's directed OSHA, the folks who make sure your employer isn't harming your safety at work, to develop new COVID-specific standards for workplace safety. And perhaps most importantly, he's focusing in on schools. Schools are a fulcrum institution. So much hinges on their being open and safe. First, they're critical for our kids. And second, without them, parents are forced to make tough decisions about how to care for their kids while working. That's why he's issued an executive order directing the Departments of Education and Health and Human Services to develop new guidelines for safely reopening schools and supporting them to do it. What a thought. Because so many schools are closed, kids who rely on school for meals are missing them. So he signed an executive order to expand emergency SNAP benefits. And we've got to remember that we're not the only country facing the pandemic. And global coordination is key. So Biden officially put a halt to America's crash out of the World Health Organization that would have taken place in July. And finally, to take on the fact that COVID-19 has taken a far heavier toll on black and brown communities, he signed an executive order to assure an equitable response. Taken together, Biden's flurry of executive orders, coupled with his $1.9 trillion American rescue plan, show the power of our federal government to take on big challenges. That is, when we want to. Which is why it's such a curious thing that we're coming up so short when it comes to permanently and fundamentally expanding healthcare to the American people, something you might want to do in a pandemic. Americans need and deserve healthcare. No healthcare-related industry has fared better in the pandemic than health insurance. Why? Two dastardly reasons. First, because so many of the most expensive elected procedures have had to be canceled, insurance companies are pocketing the money as profit. And second, millions have lost their healthcare. And because poverty tracks both financial security and health in this country, the folks who lost their jobs also tend to be the least healthy. That means they're the ones who need health insurance most and cost the companies the most money. Which demonstrates a fundamental point. Unlike most businesses who want more customers, health insurance companies are happy to lose these people off their rolls. More money in the bank for them. And yet, the best anyone is offering these people is extended COBRA subsidies. For folks who don't know what COBRA is, it's continued coverage on your employer health care even after you've lost your job for a hefty price tag. COBRA subsidies literally mean that we, the American taxpayers, are paying insurance companies who are making bumper profits even more money to do the thing that they could do on their own, which is keep people who've lost their jobs on their insurance rolls. All of this should remind us how absolutely broken our healthcare system is, and that fixing it has to mean more than tinkering around the edges. Americans deserve a comprehensive, affordable, accessible, and equitable healthcare system. A system that keeps them covered when they lose their job or decide to finally write that book or build that business or turn 26 and get kicked off their parents' insurance. They deserve a system that doesn't plague them with debt when they inevitably do get sick. The solution, and if you've listened to this pod, you know where this is going, the solution is Medicare for All. Today, we're going to talk about just that. I've invited Dr. Micah Johnson, who for the last two years has worked with me on a new book on this issue, Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. The book we've written together is a comprehensive, easy-to-digest breakdown of America's most important policy in waiting. Writing this book with Micah has been a pleasure for the last two years, especially since the COVID-19 crisis has demonstrated the absolute moral necessity of Medicare for All. That's something Micah knows far too well, having watched the consequences of COVID-19 on our healthcare system for his patients up close in the hospital. He joins me to talk about it and discuss how we approach some of the toughest questions about Medicare for All after the break. 
My guest today is someone I've gotten to know really well, a resident physician in internal medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and co-author of a new book called Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide, uh, with another schlub who, um, who uh, is going to take a backseat for this interview. Micah, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Micah, we got to know each other uh, when I was running for governor, and we got to work together on an ambitious plan to provide the people of the state of Michigan with a single-payer, Medicare-for-all-style healthcare reform. And um, that's not really what we're here to talk about today. But I I want to hear a little bit about your history with thinking about the relationship between healthcare policy and the real lived on the ground experience that you've had as a a trainee and and now a resident physician during the COVID-19 pandemic? It's a great question. And it's really my experience with patients is the thing that really got me excited and passionate about health policy, because you see the problems that folks are dealing with every day. And especially working here in Massachusetts, one thing that has really hit home is having insurance isn't enough. And most of my patients are fortunate enough to have insurance, but nevertheless, we see the gaps in the system every day. People can't afford their medications. People can't get in to see the doctors that they need to treat their conditions. And that's what ultimately got me working with your campaign to try to think about what a different system could look like and what would actually make things better for patients day to day. I really appreciate you saying that, right? Because a lot of the conversation that we have about healthcare policy tends to focus more on these high-level, really abstract questions that play out in the political arena. But in the end, really, what you're saying is that this question of where our healthcare goes and the way that it's structured has extremely important real-world implications for the kind of work that you do every day uh, as a clinician. I want to ask you, why do you think that we lose that in the conversation about Medicare for All? Why is it always about these you know, abstract questions about the overall cost of a program or, you know, this abstract question of, of, of consumer choice rather than about the nuts and bolts of providing real people, real healthcare in real places in moments like these. Look, healthcare happens between doctors and patients. And unfortunately, those usually aren't the people that are at the table when we're talking about healthcare policy. Mm. Usually it's elected officials who haven't worked in healthcare or it's pundits who haven't worked in healthcare. And I think it's really easy to to take it abstractly, just like you say. And if you're just looking at a piece of paper and what you're trying to do is decrease costs, or if you're coming at it from a business angle, looking at it like any other business, trying to figure out how to increase profits, it's no surprise who gets left out. And those are are the patients, and those are the folks who are dealing with the flaws of the system on the front lines every day. And I think to the extent that we can have more people like you, more people that know the system, that are participating in the political conversation... I think that gives me some hope for how things can go in the right direction. Well, people like us, because we just uh, we just put together this book, and I'm really excited uh, to have it out there. I, I want to ask, before we talk a little bit about some of those topics that tend to dominate every conversation about this, you spend most of your day, every day, in the bowels of a very large hospital in a very large city. And that experience has fundamentally changed because of COVID-19. How has the way that our healthcare system is built and the way it runs, how has that shaped the kind of outcomes that we've seen with COVID-19? And 
If the system were to be different, how would that change your day-to-day and the outcomes that you can produce and the hospital system can produce? I think there are a few really important ways that the healthcare system is set up has made the pandemic worse. And one of them is the racial and economic disparities of who's coming in with COVID. And there are many reasons that I'm sure you've talked about in your podcast before about why this is. Mm. But one thing is you have folks, the black and brown Americans who have lacked reliable access to primary care for decades, who accumulate untreated diabetes, who accumulate untreated hypertension, untreated COPD. Mm. It's no surprise that when these folks get COVID, they're sicker. They're more likely to end up in the hospital. They're more likely to end up in the ICU on ventilators, and they're more likely to die from this disease. And we've set ourselves up for that. And I think another piece that we're seeing is that the administrative burden that the system places on patients and physicians. And it's always absurd the amount of time that doctors need to spend doing paperwork or arguing with insurance companies. But the fact that we're asked to do that now in the middle of a pandemic, that we're taking precious hours of doctors and nurses' time trying to deal with insurance companies when we've got this thing raging all around us, I think really calls into question the priorities that our system is set up to pursue. You know, one of the things that you raised in particular about the role that our healthcare system has played in setting up barriers to access to high quality primary care and preventive services and the ways that those barriers are larger, harder to climb through for black and brown Americans, I think is a really important point. One of the things we really wanted to do with this book, Micah, was to be able to connect uh, the average person who doesn't spend most of their time thinking or reading or practicing healthcare uh, day to day with the experience on the ground of so many other people who do do those things and also the people who do have to use the healthcare system. Because the reality is all of us have been consumers of healthcare, um, but some of us a lot more than others. And that's really when the, the problems start. And we wanted to be able to connect those experiences to these broader conversations that tend to take place. And oftentimes, you know, we end up talking about these things because that's where the political discourse is. But we think that the conversation, we, you know, our, our hypothesis with this book was that the conversation would be better served if we were able to connect these things uh, down to the real world. And one of the issues that comes up all the time when it comes to Medicare for All is this conversation about choice. Um, you know, as a, as a practicing physician, right, I'd love to hear uh, the way that you think about choice and um, how that informed the way that we ended up articulating uh, this conversation about choice in the book. Yeah. So as a doctor, the way that I think about choice is I think about my own patients in my primary care clinic. Mm. And if Medicare for all were to become law tomorrow, here's what would happen for my patients. They could keep their appointment for tomorrow the same way they would before. Mm. They could come in and see me in the office. But what would be different is they can now get whatever prescription drug that they need. I can now refer them to any hospital in the city. I could refer them to whatever specialist they need to go. They could get the colonoscopy or the mammogram or the echocardiogram or whatever the test is that they need. And that's expands their choice enormously. And we've really flipped the conversation. I think when it comes down to it, people don't really care about the choice of insurance plan. They care about the choice of healthcare. And private insurance does a lot of things to restrict people's choice, usually using financial methods, but also just by restricting folks' networks. And I think what we're really missing in the Medicare for All conversation is the simple truth 
that Medicare for All would expand the choice of healthcare for virtually everyone in the country. That's right. I mean, that's the, that is the key point, right? Is that most people don't think about choices, whether or not they get to pick between X health insurance plan or Y health insurance plan with a certain level of premium or a certain level of deductible. These are words that nobody really understands because they don't make much sense anyway. And they think about choice as what doctor can I see? What services can I get? When and where can I get those things? And unfortunately for too many Americans, either their choice is restricted because they don't have health insurance at all or because the health insurance corporation, whom they rely on for health insurance, tells them what doctor they can see, what services they can get, and when they can do it. And so we've, like you said, really flipped this on its head. The other conversation that tends to to come up all the time, Micah, is the conversation about cost. And again, I feel like that's a misnomer, right? Because the question is always cost for whom. Um, but we really wanted to connect that to the, the cost question that real people face uh, every single day. Can you talk about how um, the way that we, we took this on in the book is shaped by and informed by your experience with your patients every day? Yeah. So the way we put it in the book is that we ask, what does Medicare for All do to the kitchen table budget? Not just to the government budget, hmm. because that's what people are thinking about when they're in the office trying to figure out what healthcare they can get, what healthcare their kids can get. They're asking, how much do we need to put into this and how much do I have left over for everything else that my family needs? And when you look at it that way, first, we have to confront the fact that the most expensive healthcare system in the world is the current American healthcare system. So people are surprised when they learn that Medicare for all would cost the same or less as our current system. But when you think about that, the current system is the most expensive in the world, that really shouldn't be that surprising. But What's overlooked, I think, even more frequently is the fact that the current system puts an outsized burden on middle-income and low-income families because we're charging the same high prices and the same high premiums, whether you're rich or whether you've got low income, and that ends up putting a huge burden on folks at the lower end of the distribution. And what Medicare for All does changes the way that we pay for healthcare to push more of the burden up to the folks who've got more money and get some of those costs off the backs of the people who are struggling today. So for the vast majority of people, they end up paying less for healthcare under Medicare for All. And that comes out in terms of no longer having high deductibles, no longer having high drug prices, and no longer having the high premiums. And I think it would make a huge difference for patients. Mm-hmm. It's funny, right? Because people are so concerned with the American budget, the budget of the, the US government, and so much less concerned with the budget that all of us have to make sure matches up um, at the end of every month, at the end of every year. And for too many people, it simply doesn't because of the cost of healthcare. I mean, the crazy thing about it is that 67% of personal bankruptcies are attributable to healthcare debt. And uh, even if you're insured in this country, right, the average family of four faces down a, a, a deductible, which is the, the money you have to pay to get access to the healthcare you already paid for in the form of a premium of 3,500 bucks, right? And 3,500 bucks for the average family of four, which earns, by the way, about $52,000 a year, is a lot of money. That's like a single paycheck, right? And so it puts you behind a paycheck just to get the healthcare you already paid for. I, um, when we ran, you know this, Micah, I wouldn't allow anybody to cost out uh, what this would cost the state budget simply because I knew that the minute that we said that number, that was going to be the place that we had been trained to talk about. Every journalist would have said, oh, this plan is going to cost the state of Michigan X amount of money. And it would have been some number in the billions. And because billions are very large numbers, people would say, well, that seems unaffordable. Except for the fact that that would mean that the state was picking up the cost for so many people in the state of Michigan uh, who cannot afford their health care as it stands. And so we're having fundamentally the wrong conversation about health care 
because we're talking about a state budget or a federal budget rather than talking about the kitchen table budget that is bankrupting millions of Americans every year. And, and the crazy thing about this is we can't seem to break out of that mold. Another place that we uh, tend to talk about healthcare, which is particularly salient now in the context of this pandemic, uh, is that people say that Medicare for all would force us as a country to use the R word, to ration healthcare. But the crazy thing is that we're watching as states and communities across the country are starting to think about having to ration healthcare because our healthcare system isn't up to the task. Uh, how did, do you think about this question, Mike, as a practicing physician, uh, and how did it inform the, the way that uh, we, we ended up writing about it in the book? There's an ethical question at the center of all this, and that's what should decide what healthcare people get? Mm -hmm. And I think as a doctor and as just someone thinking about this issue, I think what should matter for what healthcare you get is what healthcare you need. Mm -hmm. It should be based on what your healthcare needs are, what your actual medical issue is. That should be what determines what healthcare you get. The problem is when we have, and the way we write about it in the book, we don't really have a healthcare system. We have a medical marketplace. And the way that our medical marketplace distributes healthcare is you get the healthcare that you can pay for. And it's a fundamentally, in my view, backwards way of thinking about it. And, you know, the way that we ration healthcare in the status quo is we ask who can pay for it and who can't. And if you can't pay for it, you don't get it. And it just turns out in terms of public health, that's a really bad way of distributing healthcare. And I think that <laughs> what it really comes down to is what is the heart of our healthcare system? Should we try to run it like a business? Should we use business ethics in terms of trying to get healthcare to people? Or should we be using a lens of public health? And I think having that, having that conversation change is really important for pursuing big reforms like Medicare for All. Yeah, I mean, that is, that is the central core. Do we believe that the power of a number of extremely large corporations to continue to profit in this industry is more important than providing basic access to healthcare? For millions of Americans who currently don't have it. And right now, the status quo tells us that we do. We, we think that it's more important for corporations to continue to profiteer off of this public good. And one of the things that suffers, right, in our extremely behemoth healthcare system that costs us 18% of every dollar spent in the entire economy is that there's so much money sucked up into these profit-making healthcare enterprises, whether that's the hospital industry or the pharmaceutical industry or the insurance industry, that we have disinvested, in effect, in the part of healthcare that nobody can make money on, which is public health, because it's impossible to sell someone a non-thing, which is what we do in public health. And so we've seen the failure of that model through the course of this pandemic, where we have not had the basic healthcare resources that we need um, to be able to do basic things like contact trace. Uh, or get the word out, or deploy a vaccine. And this vaccine point is so emblematic of the failure of our system. Our pharmaceutical industry was able, right, to be a part of a system that, by the way, was publicly funded, uh, to get a vaccine from soup to nuts uh, out to people in a year. And then our public health infrastructure was so anemic that we couldn't actually deploy that vaccine out to where it needed. So ultimately, right, the question of the speed with which we were able to break the scientific barrier down was ultimately flummoxed by the failure to be able to even do the basic work of getting a vaccine out there. Um, how have you thought about the role that prevention and public health have played in 
uh, the justification for a Medicare for all type system where the public investiture can be more evenly distributed? And how does that show up, you know, for you clinically? Yeah, that's exactly right. And the COVID vaccine is the perfect example of the paradox of American medicine, where we have the best scientists and the best science infrastructure making groundbreaking discoveries. And nevertheless, our life expectancy is the lowest, by far the lowest of our peer countries. And the explanation for that, in large measure, it's all the things between the discovery and actually delivering care to people that are failing. And we see that with the COVID vaccine, where it's one thing to have the patent, and it's another thing to have shots in people's arms, and we're really falling short. But it's very similar no matter what health condition you look at. We have incredible technology in this country. We could be providing people with the best healthcare in the world, but it's the system that's preventing us from doing that. And I think one of the promises of Medicare for All is trying to actually make good use of the best healthcare in the world to make sure that people are receiving it. And you know, I think it's no exaggeration to say that if you combine American technology and ingenuity with smart policy like Medicare for All, we could have the best, the best healthcare system in the world. I really appreciate that point. And, you know, Micah, you're a young doctor. Uh, You're just getting started in your career, literally an intern, uh, first year uh, practicing. And, you know, your uh, intern year will also have been the the COVID year, which, which, you know, you will talk about and tell your grandkids about. You've got a lot of, of, of time left in this healthcare system. And, you know, you spent the last two and a half years, you and I, putting together this book. What do you hope happens from here? What do you hope folks reading this book will come away with in recognizing what it means for folks like you who are doing the work of delivering healthcare every day and what it can mean for folks like them and the people that they love if and when they get sick? There's a couple things. I think the first thing that I want people to realize is that it doesn't need to be this way. And I think a lot of people in their personal experiences, you know, I think of, you know, Lisa, who we profile in the book, so many Americans like her who face injustice at the hands of the healthcare system, but then are somehow told that it has to be this way, that it would only be worse if we try to change it. And I think if I want people to come away from the book knowing one thing, it's that it's just not true. There are so many things we could do to make the healthcare system better that would make care better for people and that would make it more affordable for them. And then I think for Medicare for All in particular, you know, I think back to my own experience with this issue. And and there's this sort of eureka moment when you realize that it's not an economic barrier and there's there's no practical barrier to us doing Medicare for all. Mm. We can afford it. You know, we have the policy developed to do it and realizing that this is a question of political will. Mm -hmm. And I think by understanding that, I think that lets us strategize better for healthcare reform. And I think it, it motivates folks to get involved in the political process and to know that fundamentally they're fighting for the right thing. And how do we get involved? How do we build the movement? How do we talk to each other to organize around this idea of actually making healthcare a human right and having confidence that it's possible and then channeling that into the political process. And one of the, the benefits that I have being a young physician is that we're in this fight for the long haul. Mm. You look back to, to how Medicare was passed. It's not passed in a year. This is a multi-year movement that goes from administration to administration 
and finally wins when the political window opens. Mm. And I think it's exciting to to be a part of that journey with Medicare for All. Yeah, I, um, I'm grateful that you are. Um, we end the book talking about the politics of Medicare for All. And I think the point that you made is an important one because people are asking me, is that, well, you know, your guy didn't win. Uh, Bernie didn't win, right? And, and Warren didn't win. And Joe Biden has gone on record saying that he, he doesn't support Medicare for All. But this is the point, is that we cannot allow uh, a two-year or a four-year cycle uh, to curtail us from advocating for what we do need in the long term and what would fundamentally structurally solve the failure of our healthcare system. And the point that you made about organizing, uh, I think, sits at the core there. There is a lot of money that gets spent every single year fighting against any sort of healthcare reform, and in particular, this one. And if you look at, you know, the major lobbying industries ranked by investment in lobbying, number one is the pharmaceutical industry, $4.4 billion over 20 years. Number two is the insurance industry, right? Something like $2.5 billion. Number eight is the hospital industry. They're spending all kinds of money to tell us that it costs too much, that we're going to lose our choice, that they're going to ration health care. And the only way we oppose that is not going to be through money. It's going to be because people decide that our bodies, our lives are worth it, and that we're willing to come together to build out a healthcare system that dignifies all of us, uh, whether their profits happen or they don't, their profits be damned, that this is the right thing to do. And so I'm really grateful to have spent the last two and a half years getting to write this book with you, really grateful for uh, your contribution on the wards every day, saving lives, and uh, their contribution to the conversation uh, about the future of our healthcare. And uh you know, we ask this question to everybody. I have, a, I have a good sense of what your life has been like, but tell us how you've been spending this time in the pandemic. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I can tell you most recently I've spent it on a 30-hour shift in one of our ICUs, <sighs> um, which, you know, really seeing things up close and not getting complacent, you know, and, and we're here. We've, we've been with this pandemic for so long. It's been almost a year but just the reality is that it's still raging. People are still suffering and the fight's not over. It's not over. And there's still the decisions that we make now are going to make such a big difference for this country. So uh, I've been grateful to be able to, to work on the front lines and then also to be in conversation with, with folks like you to think about what we can do on the public health end. And really, it's a, it's a team effort while working together in this. Well, grateful for it. And uh, that was Dr. Micah Johnson. He's a resident physician at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Internal Medicine, and uh, co my co-author on a new book called Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. Micah, thank you so much for taking the time uh, from your busy, busy schedule to spend some time with us to talk about this book and the opportunity we have to take on the structural affairs of our system and build out a system that's more just and equitable for all of us. Thank you again. Thanks so much for having me. If my conversation with Dr. Micah Johnson piqued your interest about Medicare for All, then please go on over to medicareforallbook.com, pick up a copy of the book, and take a read. I think you'll enjoy it. As I said, we've got to hit that 5,000 copy mark by next Monday to get on the bestsellers list and recenter Medicare for All in the public conversation. We're 75% of the way there, and this should be our biggest week. So please, if you want to help us drive that conversation, pick up your copy at medicareforallbook.com. Once again, that's medicareforallbook.com. Or pick one up at your local bookstore. Now, as usual, here's what I'm watching right now. The chair lays before the Senate two certificates of election for the state of Georgia and a certificate of appointment to fill the vacancy created by the resignation of former Senator Kamala D. Harris of California. <laughs> 
Senators Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff have officially been sworn in, which means that with Vice President Kamala Harris as the deciding vote, Democrats officially hold the Senate. The question now is how fast they can move on both confirming President Biden's nominees and passing much-needed COVID-19 relief. And it couldn't come more quickly. More aggressive COVID-19 variants, each with mutations at the same N501Y site that codes for the virus's spike protein, are popping up around the world. South Africa, the UK, Ohio. These variants are more transmissible, and some evidence suggests that while they aren't resistant to the vaccine, they could blunt the vaccine's efficacy. This sets up a race between the virus and the vaccine. If we can vaccinate enough people fast enough, the virus runs out of firewood. But if we can't, we risk a moment when a strain evolves that could, in fact, be vaccine-resistant. I'll be honest with you, that's my biggest worry right now. On the other side, with vaccinations underway and the holiday surge almost behind us, the coronavirus may have hit its peak. I repeat, may have hit its peak. Because peaks are only something you can diagnose when you're all the way out of the fire. And we're not. Remember when we were lulled to sleep by a good summer into thinking there might not be a spike in the fall? That's why I think talking about a peak is irresponsible right now. Because we can't know if this is just a blip or a real phenomenon. And any decline we've had is because of good choices people are making to wear masks, physically distance, and get vaccinated. And declaring victory too soon risks letting down our guard. Let's not, okay? Oh, and one last thing. It was discovered that you could squeeze an extra additional dose of the Pfizer vaccine out of a five-dose vial. You'd think that in the middle of an international crisis, they'd just give that sixth dose for free. Nope. Pfizer is now trying to retroactively charge the government for the sixth dose and count it toward its 200 million dose allocation. Remember, pharma gonna pharma. Oh, and if you want to learn more about Medicare for All, you can pre-order our book at medicareforallbook.com. And I promise that's the last time I'm going to ask you. That's it for this week. And next week, we talk to Dr. Mary Bassett, former health commissioner of the city of New York and director of the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard about the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Black Americans and about the impact that that might have on vaccine deployment. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Atake Asuzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>